Welcome to Industry Focus, the show that dives into a different sector of the stock market every single day. Today is Wednesday, September the 4th, and we're talking healthcare. I'm your host, Shannon Jones, and I'm joined by healthcare guru Todd Campbell. Todd, how's it going? It's going well. I'm happy to be here. So glad to have you and super excited for this week's healthcare show. We've got two big stories we're diving into today. The first of which is Amgen's multi-billion dollar bet on an aging mega blockbuster drug. And then uh, second half of the show, we're going to be talking about a new contender that could be ready to shake up the cholesterol, specifically the PCSK9 market as well. But uh, Todd, how about we kick things off with, with Amgen? You know, sometimes, Shannon, I guess it's not about who has the deepest pockets. It's about who who wants the drug or the or the, the thing you're buying bad enough. Yes, and I think that's what we yes. saw with Amgen. Um, you know, I think Amgen is paying $13.4 billion. $13.4 billion. In cash, in no cash. less. <laughs> off, that, off the very healthy balance sheet, I think they have like $22 billion on the balance sheet. So this is all cash. Um, yeah, and for and with, our listeners out there- a Tesla. Yes, for Otesla. And for our listeners out there, Amgen is ticker symbol AMGN. And yes, last week they announced they were making big moves. This is essentially to bolster their top line. Being very opportunistic here, Todd, uh, pouncing on Celgene Psoriasis drug Otesla. Um, really, this is Amgen taking advantage of that Bristol Myers Squibb Celgene mega merger here as they try to appease regulators. But Todd, give us kind of the backstory on Otesla and why this opportunity did open up for Amgen in the first place. Right. So if you're not familiar, if you, if you haven't been paying attention to healthcare, earlier this year in January, Bristol Myers went out and offered $74 billion to buy Celgene, which is just a mammoth fast-growing company uh, with a, a platform of, of biotechnology drugs that includes Tesla, which is approved for the treatment of psoriasis, an autoimmune disorder. Uh, the $74 billion, just so investors have the, back, you know, the full information, the way that that's breaking out is you're, if you own Celgene um, and the deal goes through, you're going to get 50 bucks in cash and you're going to get a share of Bristol-Myers Squibb. And you're also going to get a contingent value right, which a CVR, which is, you know, worth about nine bucks, and we'll we'll get into that later if you want. But that that's that's the back around of the deal. Now this is a big deal. What it does is it combines Bristol Myers, uh, which has some pretty big sellers in cancer, including Opdivo, a PD1 inhibitor, with Celgene, which is the market share leader in multiple myeloma. Um, they market drugs like Revlimid and Pomelis, for example. And as a result, the combined company would be the number one player in oncology. The combination would have also created a pretty large player in autoimmune disease uh, by marrying Celgene Zotesla, which is, again, a psoriasis drug, with Bristol-Myers Orencia, a rheumatoid arthritis drug. And Bristol-Myers also has a very compelling uh, mid-stage drug in development for psoriasis, and that one's called had to have a name yet. It's called BMS nine eight six one six five. So I, when the FTC and all these deals have to go through, you know, regulatory agencies to make sure that they pass muster and there's not too much um, concentration of market share. Once the FT, FTC evaluated the deal, they determined that you know what, the Otesla um, edition was going to concentrate too much power in autoimmune disease 
like uh, specifically psoriasis at Bristol Myers. And as a result, the FTC said, if you want this deal to go through, you're going to have to sell a Tesla. And for context here, I mean, for Amgen, this is the largest deal in almost two decades for them, Todd. I think um, if you look back, Amgen actually purchased a company called Immunex back in 2001. That was a deal for $16 billion. Um, Immunex was actually the company behind Amgen's mega blockbuster, Embril, which I think so far has earned, what, more than $60 billion in sales since it launched, probably more than that now. Um, and then also, just from a timing perspective, looking at this deal, um, on the Embril front, Amgen actually won a recent court decision that keeps basically lower-cost competitors from entering the market, basically giving Embril another eight years of exclusivity. It is the fourth biggest-selling drug of all time to date. For them, I mean, it, it, it makes sense. Amgen, they did see revenues fall about 3% to $5.9 billion in the second quarter. Um, so you've got to win on one hand. Revenues have started to slip. This gives kind of an immediate boost to that top line for them. Right. And there was some concern about Enbrill. They didn't know how that's going to come out. There's also going to be an appeal um, that theoretically could, you know, threaten that um, patent win for Enbrill, for Amgen. So what this does is it allows them to... Uh, leverage all of those resources that it currently com um, um, commits to Enbrel, also to a Tesla. And what's interesting about this deal, I, I mentioned at the top of the show, sometimes it's not about who has the deepest pockets. I mean, a lot of people were thinking, hey, maybe Gilead Sciences will go out and do it. They've got a tremendous amount of cash, and arguably, I think they have a little bit more than Amgen in cash and securities on the books. And, um, and it might make sense for them. Um, analysts had projected anywhere between five billion and ten billion as the price that a Tesla could fetch in a bidding war. Uh, they undersold it, obviously. You know, thirteen point four billion is what Amgen's willing to pay for it. And I think that the reason the Amgen was willing to pay that much money is because, yeah, they already have this worldwide embedded sales force that they can immediately begin leveraging to push the ball. Um, for for Tesla, and you know, they were already starting to see some people thinking about that and readjusting what their peak sales forecasts were for a Tesla. I think that prior to the deal getting announced, people were forecasting peak sales of about 2.5 billion a year for a Tesla, which would make this deal um, break even on a on a on a uh, net basis around 2024 or so. Uh, now you're starting to see them think, hey, you know what? Maybe Tesla's peak is actually closer, higher to, towards three billion, because of all the resources that Amgen can commit to it. The low end of the expectation, the five billion, is kind of interesting because you know we always, when we're talking about healthcare and drugs, we have to think about the patent situation, and you know there are patents that are expiring on Tesla uh, as early as 2023, and some people have wondered whether or not the the patents that expire in 2028, and I think the other one's in 2032 or 34, or something like that, um, whether or not those would hold up under scrutiny. So some people were thinking, hey, maybe it won't fetch as much as it will because of the patent risk to it. Obviously, Amgen, on the heels of this patent victory, thinks, nope, we'll be able to protect it, and this is going to end up paying off for us. Well, you know, time will tell. Yeah, time will tell. Let's talk about a little bit on the Bristol end. Um, and what they're getting out of this deal, because they're pocketing $13.4 $13, $13 in cash. 
um, already have some plans for that cash, Todd, one of which is to improve the balance sheet. They're planning to pay down debt. The merger between Bristol and Celgene does increase Bristol's debt, um, debt to EBITDA ratio from one to nearly three times EBITDA by 2020. And this is compared to an average for most big pharma companies of about 2.4 times EBITDA. Um, so they're using the cash proceeds to reduce its debt, which should bring it to less than one and a half times EBITDA by 2023. They also have plans to accelerate their current buyback plan, increasing it to $7 billion, up from $5 billion. And we've talked about, of course, the Bristol-Celgene deal um, quite extensively in the past. But, I mean, not only are they able to use this cash to pay down debt, they're getting also a huge boost to their pipeline as well. Um, they've got, in total, more than two dozen clinical programs and six in phase three, but they've got a handful of blockbusters too, Todd. Yeah, Celgene had a bunch of, uh, have a bunch, has a bunch of pipeline drugs that are knocking on uh, the regulatory door. And, you know, each one of them has billion-dollar blockbuster potential. There's there's five of them, actually. BB2121, Lucepedrocept, Fedratinib, which just won approval, I believe, JCAR-17, which we've talked about in the show, Nizonamid, which we've talked about on the show, and multiple sclerosis. Um, if those win uh, approval, then, you know, obviously, that certainly helps this deal for Bristol Myers makes sense. I think investors should also recognize that Celgene was handsomely profitably profitable for this. So, you know, this is an accretive deal right out of the gate. It's going to help Bristol Myers earnings. And, you know, it's gen- this company is going to generate a tremendous amount of cash flow. And like you said, that cash flow is going to be used plus this $13.4 billion to reduce the debt, get the leverage down, um, and I would and buy back more shares. And I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, there's tailwinds to um, the dividends as well. Yeah, yeah, very good point. So, um, a lot to watch here, both from Bristol and for Celgene and also for Amgen. Uh, but, Todd, let's switch gears. Let's talk about the other story making the headlines. And this is about a company. It's a company called The Medicines Company, and that's ticker symbol MDCO, which recently announced at a Paris medical conference that its cholesterol-lowering medicine, um, Inclicerin, and passed a phase three study with really flying colors, both on the efficacy and the safety end. Uh, Todd, in, in reviewing these study results, it's hard not to see this drug not being a formidable foe in this space, especially going up against the likes of Amgen's Repatha and Regeneron and Sanofi's Proluent. It posted really impressive phase three results. It also comes with a convenience advantage and uh, this is also a huge win for another company we've talked about on the show, Alnylam Pharmaceuticals, A-L-N-Y. Ultimately, this drug could be the drug to watch in this space. But Todd, just tell us a little bit about the study results and ultimately how this drug works. First, let's give a, <clears throat> a shout out to the, uh, the marketing gurus who are behind naming this company. No, no <laughs> doubt about what they do, right? Medicine and company. I love it. MDCO. Um, yes. Yeah, so we're talking about cardiovascular disease. We're talking about stroke. We're talking about heart attack. We're talking about over 600,000 Americans alone dying every year because of, of heart disease and the massive need despite existing treatments for uh, new treatment options. You know, in 2015, um, you know, Proluent and Repatha both won FDA approval and, you know, they were pretty transformational and highly anticipated because, they were the first drugs of a class called PCSK9 inhibitors that go about reducing cholesterol to try and, you know, reduce the risk of heart attack and stroke. 
um, in an entirely new way. Unlike statins um, that try to reduce the production of uh, cholesterol in the liver, what this PCSK9 inhibitors did is they uh, helped prevent the breakdown of receptors in the liver that collect bad cholesterol. So more receptors in the liver, more bad cholesterol getting cleared from the body, lower cholesterol levels. And in trials, those PCSK9 inhibitors were very effective. They you know, reduced, when added to statins, they reduced cholesterol by an additional 50% or so. So they were heralded and, and much anticipated uh, when they were launched. However, they launched with relatively expensive price tags. I think originally they were priced around 14 grand a year. And, you know, you talked about a dosing advantage. We'll get to that in a second. But the way that the PCSK9 inhibitors that are dosed right now are on the market, uh, Proluent and Repatha, they're given every two weeks or at a higher dose, maybe once monthly. And, you know, some people don't like injections. So, I mean, if you're already on statins and you <clears throat> don't really like injections and you're trying to lower your cholesterol um, and you've got this really expensive option, uh, you know, maybe, maybe it's not going to become the blockbuster that you thought. That's kind of what has pa panned out. Now, PCSK9 inhibitors have shown the ability to improve mortality um, in large studies. That That's happened more recently. Um, and I think that that's kind of re-energizing this, this uh, I guess you'd call this target, the PCSK9 target. Uh, and as a result, you're, you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars in sales that Repatha and Prolin are currently bringing in, but shy of the blockbuster expectations. What the medicines and companies co company is doing is it's using technology by now on to um, basically stop or silence the gene from producing the protein that actually breaks down um, those receptors in the liver. So it's 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 a little bit earlier in um, in the cycle, if you will, than the existing PCSK9 inhibitors. And because of that, and the way it's delivered, uh, they think they can get away with only twice annual dosing and deliver roughly the same kind of efficacy as far as reducing cholesterol. So a, a huge win in terms of this phase three study. They do have two other phase three studies ongoing. But for this drug, this is the first cholesterol-lowering therapy in the RNAi therapeutic space, um, and really the first to go after a much broader class of diseases. Um, of course, alnylam has really made its name by going after these rare diseases. Um, but really what you're seeing and what has played out um, with you know, this year, some of the data that's come out is really a validation of their RNI platform. So, and it's boosting, I think, the confidence for a lot of investors as Alnylam even plans to go after even larger therapeutic classes. You're talking about hypertension, um, something we've talked about on the show quite a bit, fatty liver disease, which is NASH. Um, and it really also gives Alnylam some near term revenue. So, I mean, the drug is approved, of course, in the ballpark of about 20% in royalties. And so not only is this a win for the medicines company, it's a win for Alnylam, and really just RNA, RNAi itself. Uh, this study, the Orion 11 study, is now the third positive phase three study for an RNA, RNAi, if I can say it, therapeutic, and the second in 2019 alone. Um, so this, this company may be relatively under the radar. Not a lot of people have talked about it. Not a lot of buzz as of now, um, but I think that's going to change, and I think continue to give more validation to this tech platform as well. This is going to be a really interesting space to watch over the course of the next, you know, year and a half, two years. Um, you know, they're expecting to file for approval, FDA approval, medicine company is, of this medicine uh, at the end of the year, 
and that would clear the way for you know an approval in, in roughly 10 months after it's accepted by the FDA. So say let, let's say late 2020. Um, that's going to put it on the market just a little bit behind, potentially, Aspirin's add-on therapy. Aspirin is another company similar there's ESPR, which has shown an ability to create, a, you know, they create a drug, bempedoic acid, that can lower when added to statins, uh, bad cholesterol levels, and that's an oral pill that's going to be cheaper to manufacture and theoretically cheaper to the healthcare system. We'll have to see how doctors, patients, everybody else settles on this. Will they look at, okay, we know that many people, millions, I mean, this is, statins are the most widely prescribed drug in the world. So we know that millions of people are on statins. We know that up to 45% of, of statin patients actually stop or don't take their statins as prescribed because of, um, oftentimes because of side effects. Uh, we know that we need new treatment options. So we need to decide, okay, well, if we can get, you know, an additional 30% or 40% of lowering from this pill made by Asperian, um, is that enough for most patients? Uh, and then will we just leave this more expensive, theoretically, option for medicine company from the ones who are really failing or are completely statin intolerant? This is going to be a very interesting marketplace to watch. And then you're also going to have to be thinking about, okay, well, how is this going to shake out with Repath and Prolent, who are already you know, Amgen and Regenera have been cutting the price on those drugs like crazy to get them down to just a few thousand dollars. Um, you know, so I don't know how the medicine company plans on positioning this. That's not saying it. But I think that there's there's a lot of moving pieces here uh, that investors are going to have to bear in mind before going out and pressing the buy button or the sell button on any of these companies. Exactly. Yes, I think the pricing conversation is really the key area to watch here. Um, I mentioned they've got two phase three studies ongoing, Orion 10 and Orion 9. Um, those are expected to read out later this year. With those studies, um, and going back and, and looking through the call and the notes, it sounds like really pricing conversations with insurers will happen as those studies uh, start to wrap up. I mean, assuming the efficacy and safety profile remains favorable, um, it could very much position um, the medicines and companies drug um, well above, you mentioned that $14,000 price tag for competitors. I mean, that has been the overhang, one of the main overhangs with the PCSK9s, in addition to the fact that you're having to do these frequent injections. Um, I think also working in its favor, though, if it, if it can get approved with the twice-a-year dosing regimen, this also puts that dosing schedule in line with the recommended uh, doctor's visits for people who are high, at, a, at a high risk for cardiovascular events. So, in theory... Um, if they are going to the doctor for regular checkups, they're also able to get this injection once every six months. From an insurer's standpoint, it would seem to me like this would be a favorable outcome for all. You're able to really drive those health outcomes because you know people are coming um, and getting those injections um, in line with those doctor's appointments. But still a lot to watch here. I think pricing will be key. Um, obviously, the compliance issue is less of an issue, I think, with the medicines and companies drug. But we'll have to see there. I think, you know, for the nearly 74 million Americans that have high cholesterol and fewer than half that are receiving treatment for it, I mean, the opportunity is massive. Um, I think, though, Todd, at the end of the day, what we'll want to see from this company, I mean, granted, it met its primary and secondary endpoints in this most recent study. But to your point earlier, we want to know 
that this drug has the ability to show a reduction in those cardiovascular events, so the heart attacks and the strokes. And that'll be a much longer-term study, but really that's ultimately what I think gets the patients, physicians, and the payers all on the same page and willing um, to, to go to bat for this drug. Yeah, that's a great point because, again, if you're on a PCSK9 inhibitor like Proluent or um, Rapatha, those long-term cardiovascular outcome studies have already been done. So if you're a doctor, are you going to say, yeah, this is fewer treatments per year, um, and I assume that the mechanism of action is going to be similar and we're going to have a similar kind of readout eventually in the cardiovascular outcomes, but I don't know that because the trials haven't haven't been done. Um, there are, you know, on the secondary measures, there were obviously some signals that suggest that it, it could be as effective. Um, so again, it's going to be very, very interesting to see how doctors and patients view that dosing advantage, um, you know, res- you know, related to the efficacy. Exactly. So long-term um, Orion 4 trial is currently enrolling patients that won't read out until 2024 um, on the cardiovascular events. And again, we did see some promising early signs, but we'll have to wait for that. In the meantime, though, um, all eyes will certainly be watching the next Orion readout, which could happen at the American Heart Association conference happening in November. No doubt all eyes want to see at least um, comparable safety and efficacy. I know safety was a big question mark. Um, looking at RNA, RNAi uh, therapeutics in general, um, but a lot to watch, and we will certainly keep all of our listeners up to date. And as for Todd and I, that'll do it for this week's Industry Focus Healthcare Show. We want to thank you for tuning in. And as always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. And The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is being mixed by Austin Morgan. For Todd Campbell, I'm Shannon Jones. Thanks for listening and full on. Full on.